All right, thank you for that excellent music. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In many ways, Dan, I wish I was preaching on John chapter 1. It'd be a much easier, more pleasant passage, a wonderful passage, but all of God's words inspired, all, all of it has his purposes for us. So we're looking at a difficult subject that we're following up on from last week, and that is uh, dealing with sin in the church, uh, leading even to that of church discipline. Uh, and who really wants to talk about that? Uh, we're all sinners. Uh, we all fail. We all know of our flaws and our sins. And uh, who wants to stand in judgment on someone else? But, uh, and that's especially true as we try to help other people with sin issues. We know that criticism is seldom appreciated. If you ever notice that, I've often thought that uh, one of the greatest tests of maturity, spiritual maturity, is how well we deal with uh, criticism. And somebody you know, challenges us or, or criticizes us in some way. Uh, and how we react to that is a real sign of where we are in our walk with the Lord, I, I truly believe. And we all struggle with being criticized. It is said that Abraham Lincoln was, was shot and killed, that uh, the, the contents of his pockets... Uh, he had a number of odds and ends, some glasses and different things like that. But he also had eight different newspaper clippings in his pockets. And most of those were favorable of his life and of his, uh, his uh, service as a, as a politician. So even the great Abraham Lincoln, individual who we look at today and think, oh, how wonderful, how, who could be like him. But we know also that he was under powerful criticism throughout all of his presidency and even before uh, probably one of the most criticized people around. And he, he wanted to have in his pocket a reminder of some of these clippings that somebody liked him out there. And so we struggle with criticism. We all do. And uh, so our initial reaction normally to criticism is anger and rejection. But I would like to throw a positive line out there before we move on. You know, there's no other place in the world, no other group of people in the world outside of the church who care enough to call us back to the path of righteousness. Uh, there's no, there's only the church, uh, do we find people willing to warn us of destructive sin and to make an effort to rescue us. Nobody else cares that much. And so when people reach out to us uh, in areas that uh, maybe are blind spots for us or areas of sin or whatever, uh, keep in mind that somebody loves you enough to reach out. And there's not many people that do that. The Church of Christ is called to do that. Matter of fact, we're given a divine commission in this passage of Scripture by God to, uh, to attempt restoration of a fallen believer and to purify the Church of Christ as needed. So we want to look at that today. We want to look at this commission God has given us. And we'll look at three different responsibilities that the Lord has given to His church in this regard. First of all, we need to understand our obligations. What is it that God has called us to do uh, with verse 9 going on down? We'll look at that here. You know, I want to say this. We need to know our obligations. Uh, we're, nobody's going to stand before God one day and say, Lord, I didn't know that about that or I would have done it. The Lord's not going to give you a buy on that. Try that with a police officer. Next time they pull you over for speeding and you say, Officer, I didn't know it was 45. I thought it was 85, you know. And, and uh, see, see how well that goes with the police officer. Never worked for me, to tell you the truth. It might work for some of you uh, grandmother types that are sitting there blubbering and uh, do it using the, putting the tears, you know, and whatnot. That might work for you, but normally you have to know the law. That's, that, the ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? 
And so it, it's same as with the Lord's precepts and principles and teachings. Uh, ignorance is no excuse. He's given us his word that we might know. And so we turn to his word to know many, many things that we probably would not know otherwise. And so as we do that here, we see two obligations in our passage. Number one, to not associate with openly, openly sinning believers. Now look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Paul had apparently written an earlier letter. It wasn't an inspired letter. People get confused about that sometimes. It wasn't inspired of the Holy Spirit. It's not found in Scripture. We don't know where it is. We've never seen it. But apparently he had written them at least a short letter uh, talking to them about some of these things. And somebody had twisted it and turned it into something he didn't mean to say. And now he is correcting that and saying, I did not say that. Here's what I said. So what did he not say? He didn't say avoid all unbelievers. He didn't say that you should have nothing to do with those in the world who are sinners, who are, who are unsaved. He said to do that, you'd have to leave the world. Uh, you'd have to become a hermit at the best in order to avoid uh, all contact with unbelievers. Nor can we be much of a witness for Christ if we're avoiding all unbelievers, right? How are we going to do that if we are, are not around the unbelievers? But this is not a blank check for us to hang out with everybody in the world about out there. Bad company corrupts good morals is still in scripture. And we need to know ourselves. We need to know the people that we are around. Uh, if, if we're being torn down spiritually and morally, if we're being corrupted by the people we're with, we need to take that very seriously and deal with that very seriously. So this is not a blank check to do whatever that Paul is saying. I'm not writing to you telling you to avoid all sinners. Somebody has said this, you, we cannot avoid contact with sinners, but we can avoid contamination by sinners. And that's uh, something to take to heart. So what is Paul saying? We'll go down to verse 11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, so what is Paul saying? He's talking about what he calls here so-called believers, our so-called brethren. Uh, that's a, a pretty tough term, and so we don't usually use it today. We usually use the term professing. So a professing believer, uh, that's what Paul's talking about. So a professing believer would be one who claims to be a Christian. They claim to be a follower of Christ. They, they might very well be able to even give you the gospel. They could tell you uh, uh, how to be saved. They, they claim to have made a profession of faith, but their life shows no evidence whatsoever of being a Christian. Uh, their lives are not they're, not, they're not following Christ, they're not obeying Christ, there's evident sin in their lives, and uh, they are yet a so-called brother here, a professing believer. Paul is not going to stand in judgment on that, he's not going to say they're saved or not saved, but we do know that if we're saved, we ought to be having some evidence of Christ in our life, right? There ought to be some fruit and evidence of that, and that's because we look back to... Uh, to verse 7, he said that, that Christ's sacrifice unleavened us. Remember that last week? That meant that, that the sacrifice of Christ removed the pollution of sin from our lives, which, should, which results in a new life, a regenerated life, a born-again life, and that should be evident in how we live. And when that's not evident, uh, we have very, every reason to question whether or not a person is saved or that we're saved. 
Don't take it for granted because we can recite the, the uh, Romans Road that we're, that such a person is a Christian if they don't have evidence of it in their life. So Paul calls them a so-called Christian. So we're looking here particularly at a professing believer, someone who claims to be saved. And it's amazing, quite frankly, how many thousands, millions of people in our country would claim to be Christians who have never, never darkened the door of a church, do not walk according to the standards of Christ, have no interest in the things of the Lord, never open their Bibles, uh, live in open sins of one kind or the other, and yet would profess, if you ask them, to be a Christian. It's amazing the number of people that are like that. So we have a lot of people in that category, uh, I suppose. So Paul talks about that person. What does he say about them? We're not to associate with them. What does it mean to associate? Very, very important at this stage. What does it mean to associate or not associate? The word means to mix up together, uh, to be blended. Now, a lot of you like to do smoothies. You know, I don't do smoothies, but a lot of you do smoothies. You take some strawberries. Matter of fact, anything on the counter, pretty much, right? <laughs> strawberries, uh, spinach, leftover pizza from the night before, a dish rag. You throw it in the blender, and you, and you blend. And you make a smoothie out of it. And when it's all said and done, what you have there is a concoction that is a blend of everything. You can't tell the difference between the strawberries and the dish rag. You know, it's, it's a blend, right? That's a smoothie. And that's the kind of word we're talking about here. When you blend with those who are living in sin, when you, when you mix with those kinds of folks, you become a blend. You can't be distinguished from one another. And so he says, do not blend with these people. Do not become like them. Do not, do not associate with them in that fashion. Now we'll see what that means uh, here as we go forth. But by, by and large, what he's talking about here is two things in our, in our language today. Don't socialize with them and don't fellowship with them. Now by not, not socializing, now notice he goes on, he'll, he'll say later on, don't even, verse 11, don't even eat with such a one. This is pretty tough stuff, isn't it? Now I want to say this, he's not saying shun them in the sense that you won't talk with them, you won't be friendly with them. You meet them at Walmart, and, uh, and you, you don't just ignore them. You don't be unkind to them. Uh, that's, not, that's not a biblical living. Uh, it, the kindness and the gentleness of Christ, is not, that's not evident. So you don't do that. But you're not socializing with them. You're not hanging out with them. They're not your runaround buddies uh, because there's open sin in their life that you don't want to blend with in this passage of Scripture. And then you don't fellowship with them. You don't pretend that uh, you're on the same page with Christ. You're not fellowshipping with them. You're not, you're, you're not uh, sharing Christ together because there's, there's open sin that characterizes their lives. And so you don't do that. You don't even eat with such a one, he says here. Why? Because to do so condones their sin. Folks, it says to them, your sin does not matter to me. And it says to them, your sin does not matter to God. And that is not the message God wants us to portray with people who are living in sin. He's going to tell us the message. But the message is not that it, your sin does not matter. That's the exact opposite of what God wants us to know here. So to socialize and to fellowship with a, a believer living in open, rebellious, uh, defiant sin is forbidden by God in this passage. And folks, to disobey that is not an evidence of, of, 
uh, big-heartedness or love, Paul said in verse 2, go back and look, he says this evidence of arrogance and pride. You think your way is better than God's. You think you know more than God. And if that's true, that's arrogance and pride. That's not love. You think you love more than God. And if you think that, you're arrogant and proud. You're not following the way of Christ. And you say, well, what if this person has been wrongly understood? Or what if the church has disciplined them and they really didn't deserve it? Don't ignore the church that has probably spent months and maybe even years dealing with an individual. Go prove your case to the church leadership. Okay? Serious stuff. You don't want to think yourself wiser and more loving than God. And so he is speaking of that. So what kind of person does he have in mind here? This, could get, this is very important. Uh, he's not talking about somebody who misses church quite regularly. He's not talking about somebody who's stingy or overly, or, you know, a bit arrogant. He's talking about someone who's committing outward, evident, defiant sins that can be recognized by the body of Christ. These are not inward sins. We can't judge hearts. That's God's prerogative. But these are outward evidences of what's going on in the heart. So as we take a look at that, he actually outlines for us some of these. these are not, this is not the exhaustive list, but it's representative of the type of things he's talking about. And so he lays out a number of things for us here in this verse. He says, first of all, immoral people. He says, I did not, it all mean, well, that's verse 10. He said, do not associate, verse 11, with a so-called brother if he's an immoral person. The word immoral is the word pornea in the Greek, which is a catch-all word for uh, anybody who's living in some kind of sexual, sinful situation. So that can include everything. Uh, that can include adultery, fornication, homosexuality, uh, any form of perversion. It's a catch-all word that includes all of them. And so that's what the word means for immorality. And the, the context here is an immoral man, right? Back up to verse 1. Secondly, we talk about covetous. That means those are wrapped up in, in uh, doing thing, wanting more than they need, more than they have. But he's talking about an extreme case here. Someone who, whose life is as such that they, as Ephesians 5.5 5 says, it's adultery, idolatry. That covetousness or greed is idolatry. Uh, we are, uh, money has a powerful effect on us. Money makes the same, uh, uh, it's actually the perfect substitute for God. And the reason why is because it demands the same things that God does. It demands loyalty. It demands dedication. It demands time. It demands focus. Uh, and it also offers some of the same things. It offers a good and happy and prosperous life. It offers many options. It offers freedom. But what money offers is a caricature of what God offers. It looks like it. It smells like it. It's not. What God offers is much deeper, much more wonderful, much more uh, uh, blessed than anything that money could ever offer. But there is an imitation going on here, and many people buy into that. This is an extreme case, however. It wouldn't be a normal case. So I'm going to drop down to the next one further down the list. A swindler, which helps us understand what a covenant person is. A swindler is someone then who is taking advantage of someone. They, they want wealth so much... Uh, and stuff so much they're willing to take advantage of other people to get that kind of stuff. When there's a hurricane somewhere and you raise your prices three or four times to take advantage, that's a swindler. 
when you, when you work in a job and you take money under the table instead of turning it into IRS, that's a swindler. When you take advantage in a business deal because you're not going to get caught, that's a swindler. And he says those are type of, that's an open, sinful situation. We shouldn't be involved with such people that are like that. Then there's idolaters. Uh, this is more than just worshiping images. This is worshiping another god. So here's a person who in essence is living for a different god than the true God. Then there's revilers. This, this means a foul-mouthed abuser of others. In this last year, year and a half, when we saw all the social justice stuff on, on our evening news and on the internet and so forth, I, it's, it's become unbelievable the dirty mouths abuse that has now become public. If you turned on the news, you heard words that could only be heard in the gutter uh, numbers of years ago used every day on the news, and it was abusive. Anybody, a, a, a culture of hate and horrible words, that's what this word means. And friends, a Christian should not be caught up in that. And I, and I say that because, sadly, I believe some Christians are. I, I've, I, we're so used to the language, we're so used to the abusiveness around us that we think it's commonplace. And there's many Christians who are letting down with their language that reveals something going on in their hearts and the, the, and the words they say about others they don't agree with on all sides. And that should not be characteristic of a Christian. And then finally, drunkards. The word itself means tipsy. And it's the idea of, a, of someone who is a, a habitual drunkard. Now, in, in our culture, we have um, uh, thousands of addictions, right? There's, what, uh, there's several thousand 12-step uh, programs for addiction programs. Let me say this carefully. Scripture knows nothing of addiction. Addiction comes out of a victimization mentality. Someone else is to blame for what I've done. And therefore I'm addicted. Scripture knows nothing of that. Scripture knows something of enslavement. That's the word it uses. Enslavement to sin. But always, always, always. It is a moral choice. It's never something you do because you can't help yourself. It's always a moral choice, and Scripture always deals with that in all these areas of addiction, including drunkenness. So that's our first obligation, not to be associated with people whose lives are characterized by these things. He's not talking about one-off situations where there was a one-time situation. He's talking about a lifestyle, a habitual lifestyle. People who live like this do not associate with such people, he says. Now, secondly, he says, to remove openly sinful people or believers from the fellowship. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do, not, do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. First, we're not to concern ourselves here with the unbeliever. He says, that's God's job. Leave that to God. But for the believer... He says those who are professing Christians living in these kinds of open and defiant sins, he says concerning those, they must be removed. Now there's no accident here. Four times in this short section of scripture, it says remove such people from the fellowship. In verse 2, verse 5, verse 7, and now in verse 13. Remove them. But you can't miss it. You can disobey it, but you can't miss it. And so he is calling on us to do that very thing. And when we do that, we're not saying someone has lost their salvation if they're saved. It's simply they've been moved out from under the umbrella of protection 
of the body of Christ. We saw that last week. The body of Christ provides a protection against the onslaughts of the devil. When a believer is removed out from the outside of that protection because of, of discipline, they now are under the direct attack of the devil himself. It's kind of like, you know, we've had these big rainstorms here recently, this deluge of rain, and we can look outside the windows here of the church building and see that rain pouring down, but we're dry. But if we shove somebody out the door into that rain, they're no longer dry. They're, they're now affected by that which did not affect them before because they've been removed from the fellowship and the protection of the body of Christ. I, I can't emphasize this more because I don't know of very many places you're ever going to hear this. And so I have to say it very carefully and very clear. This, the, to remove a believer from the church, church discipline is not removing somebody's name from a membership role. It is, it is not a slap on the wrist. It is not saying they can't sing in the choir. It is putting them outside of the umbrella of the protection of the body of Christ so that they are open, an open game for the devil to do whatever he wants to do to them. It's a serious spiritual action never taken lightly by a church that loves Christ but absolutely essential according to the scriptures if we are to obey the scriptures. And therefore, uh, it, while it's a painful thing and nobody wants anything much to do with it, it's absolutely essential. Now let me say this. There are parameters. We're talking about open, defiant, habitual sin. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, talks about people who have convictions different than ours. You don't discipline somebody because they disagree with you about some conviction. The Lord says there, you don't stand in judgment on that. that. They stand before God. Nor do we discipline people for, for issues outside of the parameters of Scripture. This is absolutely essential. Because it's, this has been abused. So few churches practice church discipline. And then we find out one that does. And I read not too long ago about this very thing of someone who, who, who disciplined a woman and her husband in the church because she came to the church in slacks. And that was against their code. And so she was removed from the church. That's, that is an abuse of the scriptures and what it teaches. We're talking about what scripture identifies as open, habitual sin, not some conviction or, or second-made idea of, of people that have made up. So our first responsibility is to understand our obligations. The second is to recognize the problem and deal with it God's way. Go to Matthew chapter 18. The other major section on church discipline is Matthew 18. And we start with verse 15 here. It says, if your brother sins, and that's as far as I want to go for right now, if your brother sins, we need to recognize the problem. So we, we, we identify that our brother of ours, a Christian, a professed so-called Christian, is living in open, defiant, rebellious sin. So we recognize that. We don't ignore it. We don't shake our heads. We recognize it. They've done that. The world's view about most sins is live and let live. You're, what business do you have to tell me how to live? That's not the idea that God gives us as a Christian, as, as a church. The church is responsible for the souls 
of those who are part of it. That is not something taken lightly. Hebrews chapter 13 tells the leaders of the church that you will give an account for the souls that you minister to. And therefore, we do not take lightly the idea that we're not here to have a, a nice church service, provide programs, and this, that, and the other. Bottom line, we're here to be physicians of the soul, to deal with the souls of people and help them to live for Christ as Christ wants them to live. That's what the church is about. So we're not to be on witch hunts. We're not to be looking around under every rock trying to find something wrong with somebody so that we can jump on them. That's certainly not what he's talking about. Harry Arnside, a, a great pastor from the past, said this, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Let's leave the dirty work to him. I like that. However, in the interest of love for a wayward believer, in the interest of purity for the church, and in the interest of obedience to Jesus Christ and his word, uh, we are to be different for the world. And we are to help one another live that way. And that will not be easy. I mean, before we jump into the passage, that will not be easy. If you try to do what God tells us to do here in dealing with one another's sins and with the church when they have to even go to the point of discipline, when we do that, we will, write it down, be misunderstood. We will be hated. We will be called pharisaical, judgmental, hard-hearted. We'll have our name put out there on Facebook. Other churches will take the people we just disciplined for open sin and bring them into their body with all, their, all, all sorts of embracement and we will be called that ugly church on the other side of town that, ha- that dealt with sin. Count on it. But that's a price you pay to follow Christ sometimes, right? And so we do that here. We look at this. What is God? I don't care what the church over there said. I don't care what this person on Facebook said. I don't care what you say. Sorry. But I do care what God says. And so here's what God says. First of all, there's, there's four steps to this process. Go back to chapter 7. We'll come back to 18 right now. But chapter 7, before we deal with anybody in this manner, we better deal with ourselves. Chapter 7, verse 3. Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this is a, this is a well-loved passage by people that don't want to be confronted, because verse 1 says, do not judge, you will not be judged. But right after Jesus says, examine yourself, make, you know, don't, don't be a hypocrite, don't, don't talk to somebody about their sins when you've got the same thing going on in your life. But after he says all that, take that log out of your eye, then he goes right down to the thing, right to the rest of the passage and tells us that we are to deal with people living in sin and in heresy. So first, though, self-examination. Let's examine our own lives. Let's pray about our own lives. Let's look deeply into our own lives so that we are in a position to try to help our brother. And remember, we're trying to help. Go back to, first Corinthians, go back to uh, Matthew 18 now. After the self-examination, because we're going through this quickly, after the self-examination, the next step is private rebuke or reproof. Verse 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If a person that you've, uh, has an issue, a sin that you know about, you go to them. I've said this a million times over the years, but... but um, uh, 
This means you go in private. This does not mean you go tell your friends about this person. It, it, this, mean, this does not mean you bring it up as a prayer request on Wednesday night. This does not mean you go to your pastor or your elder and say, oh, so-and-so is in sin. Can you go talk to him? Um, this means you, after self-examination, go and you talk to that person in private, just the two of you alone. That's a biblical mandate. Anything short of that is short of what God tells us to do. And, by the way, the vast majority of all these types of issues, conflicts and sins and so forth, can be dealt with on that level and nobody else ever knows about it. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I mean, there's all sorts of issues that have been dealt with in that level that the Lord has dealt with and brought the people around. But if it doesn't work out well, what's the next step? Well, he says, going on down to the next verse, but if he does not listen to you, then you take two, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If they won't listen to private conversation and reproof, then uh, you take somebody else with you and talk to them again. Now, this could be somebody who's knowledgeable of the situation. It could be somebody simply who is spiritually mature enough to help. It could be a church leadership person, an elder, a pastor. It doesn't really say, but you take one or two others, and you sit down, not condemnatory, but openly talking to them about this issue. Because as you sit down and with others there with you, it could be ferreted out that maybe you're wrong. Maybe you've gone too far. Uh, maybe that needs to be nuanced. And so you sit down with three or four people all together and you talk about this and you try to point out the sinful issue. If, if at the end of the day that sin is still there and not being dealt with, the individual does not want to repent, we go to the next step, verse 17. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now this is... Um, it's a part of church discipline. That's fourth step. But there's two parts to it. First of all, you tell it to the church. I, I take that to mean you tell it to the church leadership. And so the elders of the church, the pastors and the elders of the church, now get involved. And we call that person to repentance. We, we, we call them uh, forth. We try to meet with them, whatever we have to do to deal with that. We're going to talk to them. If they refuse to listen even to the church, he says... Then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which in our context would mean that we no longer recognize them as part of us, as part of our body. They have been disciplined. They will be removed. That's the last step. It's the last tool in the toolbox for the church to try to call somebody to walk with Jesus Christ and to live for him. Keep in mind the old purpose is restoration. It's to bring them back to proper fellowship with Jesus Christ. So what are the causes for this? When, we, when do we step up? I want to give you four causes, biblically, for when we do step up to this kind of thing. We've already looked at two. Number one, immorality. If there's open immorality, sinful sexual behavior, then we... We take this step. Secondly, open sins. We saw a number of that was listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. These open, defiant sins that people are habitually living in. But go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. And we'll see a third category. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. 
And that is doctrinal heresy. Paul says concerning two individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he says, I have handed them over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now here's the same wordage as we find in 1 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians 5, they've been handed over to Satan. So here are two people in the church that are teaching heresy. And, now, and they've been disciplined by the church and handed over to the devil to deal with as he pleases. So doctrinal heresy. And then finally, Titus chapter 3 verse 10, we have another one. And that is repeated divisiveness. It says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. So an individual is in the church, they're being divisive, either whether it's doctrinal or personal, personality issues or whatever. Some conviction issues, whatever. They're they're dividing the body. The leadership goes to that person and they challenge them and they warn them to stop it. And they don't listen. And so they continue in it and then you give a second warning and then they continue in it and then they are removed from the body, reject such a person as that. And so that's the repeated divisiveness as well. Let me summarize these actions. This is, this is stuff we don't talk about too often and stuff people avoid, like I've said early on, as much as possible. But let me, let me kind of summarize some things. When, when we go to somebody who's living in open, habitual sin, uh, we go with an attitude of love, humility, and forgiveness. This is not a time to stick it to somebody. This is not a time for revenge. This is not a time to get even. This is a time when we go to somebody out of the love of our hearts, fully humble and open to complete and total forgiveness upon repentance. If you don't go that way, by the way, if, you, if you, that is not your attitude, don't do it. Your heart's not ready. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. Prepare your own heart before you ever take action like this. Because if your own heart is not ready, you will just blotch it up. And you do more harm than good. And you're not in a heart's condition to do that. Number two, every effort should be made to restore this person to Christ. Restoration is the key goal. Restoring that person to Christ. Um, And so we're we're taking these horribly difficult steps because we love the person so much we want to restore them to Christ. And that should be our goal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, thirdly, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 4, Paul said this, In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you with the power of the Lord Jesus, notice the people are to be assembled together when this happens. This is an action of the entire church. It doesn't do much good if the leadership of the church has gone through this whole process. And by the way, when we've done this, and we've done this numerous times throughout the years, unfortunately, whenever we have done this as a leadership, sometimes this drags on for months and months and months of dealing with somebody, calling someone out, meeting with them, praying with them, trying to convince them until we finally come to the end of the day we have to discipline them. And after we have done that and then the church disciplines someone, then you have individuals in the church say, I don't want to do that. 
What arrogance is that? And it says here in that when, when you are assembled, when the body comes together, the body comes together united. You see, when, when some of the body does not participate in this, that simply allows the person a loophole to continue in their sin. When the body unites, then that, that takes away that loophole. Remember, this is a final ditch effort. It's not something we do lightly or quickly. Church discipline, fourth, is to set a wayward believer completely outside of the realm of the Christian fellowship, influence, and protection. It's to set them outside of the protection of the body of Christ. Why do we do this? Let me give you real quickly three purposes. Number one, upon the individual, restoration. I've said it several times. I'll say it one more time. Restoration. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses uh, verse 6 to 8, we have an individual there that uh, has been, Paul says, restore them to fellowship. And many believe it's the same person as 1 Corinthians 5. He's been disciplined by the church, and now he has repented, and Paul says, bring them back into fellowship because they have repented. Now, others believe that may be a different person. It doesn't really matter. The point is, the purpose is restoration. It's to restore them to the body of Christ and to walking with Jesus Christ. Secondly, as we found in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, the second purpose, the purity of the church is to protect it from decay. Verse 6 of chapter 5, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? Do you not know if you allow sinful, a belligerent, rebellious, open sin in the body of Christ, it pollutes the church? The church must be protected from that kind of pollution, even if the individual never responds. And then, would you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20? A third reason given in Scripture is that people might see the seriousness of sin. 1 Corinthians 5, 20. Now, let me give you a little context for this verse. Uh, he's talking about uh, church leadership, an elder. He's not talking about the everyday person in the church or every member. He's talking about an elder. He says that in verse 19. And in verse 20, he says, Those elders who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest may be fearful of sinning. An open rebuke in the presence of the body for the purpose of demonstrating the seriousness of sin for everybody. That purpose is given. Now, maintaining the right balance is very difficult, isn't it? On the one hand, most will ignore all this, Say, who are we uh, as sinners to, to uh, uh, challenge anybody? Live and let live. Who are we? And, there, and others become harsh and unloving and even vindictive. And neither balance is right. Neither, neither pole is right. The balance is that the church must be careful not to take on the character of the world. We are to speak to the world by setting an example of holiness and an attitude of seriousness about sin and an attitude of love for one another. So much love that we're willing to take the dangerous step of calling someone out so that they might walk with Jesus Christ. The church is about these kinds of things. Often I, even as the pastor of this church over all these years, I, I, I check myself sometimes, are we doing the kinds of things that we should be doing? Because we're involved in so many things. This kind of thing is a tough one, right? 
I read about a pastor who was traveling and he, went, he and his wife went to a restaurant and they sat down and ordered a meal and the meal didn't come. The waiter came back and says, I'm sorry, we'll be here soon. And it didn't come and 10, 20 minutes later he came again, I'm sorry, the food's not ready yet, I'll be here in a minute. And then he came back 10 or 15 minutes later said, I'm sorry, the food's not here. And the pastor guy was very gracious. He said, well, it's all right, I'm in no hurry. But what, what's going on? I mean, it's been 45 minutes, almost an hour. And I still don't have any food. And she said, well, the cooks forgot to cook it. And he said, what do you mean? Well, we're having an inspection tomorrow, and they're so busy making sure everything's set up, they forgot to cook. And he thought, well, what good are cooks that don't cook? What good is a church that doesn't do what God tells it to do? And minister to the souls of its people. I want to I quote Ian Murray as I pull it together. Excellent historian, church historian. He says, it is true God sees no sin in believers as to judge to condemn them. But he sees it as a father who will act to correct them. God does not judge us as a judge to condemn. But he deals with our sin as a father who loves us. And the church should follow that exact same example. Pray for us that we will do that when those things come up. Pray for that in your own life, that you will follow the teachings of Scripture, even when they're hard. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we look at a passage like this and we wish we could ignore it. Uh, we wish we'd just go on our happy selves and do our thing. But Lord, you have called us not to be doing that, but to be serious about sin in our own lives and sin in the lives of those we love. Father, help us to be a church that cares, a church that deals with sin, but does so in the exact same attitude and example that you've given us. Uh, Lord, help us to care for souls, the, the eternal souls of those that don't know Christ, the temporary souls of those who do know Christ but are living in such a way that all the benefits of Christianity and of Christ are, are lost in that kind of a sinful lifestyle. Father, you've called us to a life of holiness and you've called us as a church to, get, to gather together to be part of that holiness, to help one another do what we can't do by ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray for your power, your protection, your guidance in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.